Hey, uh, this is Mark Pellegrino. You might know me as Lucifer from Supernatural or Jacob from Lost. And you are listening to Spoiler Country. It's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Spoiler Country. My name's Kaylee Horsley. That is Johnny Horsley. And we are talking to Mark Pellegrino. Actually, we did not. Yeah, why why didn't we, Kaylee? Why weren't we on this episode? Because I wanted to be. I know. And I was like, why didn't you why did you go, John? You suck. And why'd you miss this? Oh, wait, we had to pick up my Jeep. Sorry. <laughs> we had to go buy a Jeep, but Jeff the Get Hoss guys sit down with Mark and talk about wait, what? His name is what? We call him the Get. <laughs> he's, he gets all the interviews for us, so he's Jeff, or he's Jeff Big Hoss, but we call him the Get Hoss. <laughs> Don't laugh at our stupid oh nicknames. God. We call Casey. Like I'm in a frat house. <laughs> Casey gets called. We call him his Casey T. Allen, so we call him Casey Tickle Monster Allen. <laughs> <laughs> and Kenrick's Kentucky, and apparently I am Overlord John. I don't know, but that's what I got nicknamed. Your sex. Well, I'm really sad that we missed it because, one, we always love Supernatural, and two, we talk about how he did one of the best renditions of Lucifer, and he switches bodies with Sam, and, like, you know I love it when they switch bodies, because I'm always, like, when I'm watching it, I'm always like, they really did it! <laughs> I believe, I believe! Right? Well, his his rendition of Lucifer, it's, it's one of the characters, every now and then in a show, you get a character where you're legit scared for the main characters. Yeah. Like, you're like... I don't know how they're going to beat this guy in the end. And his portrayal of Lucifer is that character for me. Every time he's on there, I'm like, man, he's too strong for them to beat. Right. And then you think they beat him and you're like, oh, he kind of looks pathetic. Nope. Wham. Always comes back. Yep. Come back to get him. I'm sure in real life, though, he's probably a pretty nice guy. Oh, the interview's awesome. He was super awesome. Yeah. I uh, Hopefully we'll be able to do it again. I should start listening to these or at least like attending them. Yeah, or the Supernatural ones. Right. <laughs> or, or we'll be starting in Smallville. Oh, or charmed. But yeah, so let's take a pause and listen to Mark Pellegrino in his own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have the fantastic Mark Pellegrino. How are you doing, Mr. Pellegrino? I'm surviving the pandemic well so far. How are you? Driving less well, perhaps. I'm actually a uh, teacher at a high school, and we have three potential uh, cases now over the last two days. So it's, it's a little nerve-wracking. <laughs> Where, whereabouts in the, in the country are you? Uh, Rhode Island. Oh, okay. 
Yikes. So, All right. Yeah, so we, we're, we're up to about 1,000 cases a day now. Considering the states only has like a million people in it, that's pretty significant. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And the uh, high schools are open. We're not distance learning, so it's, it makes things stressful. But I'm sure it's pretty rough where you are as well. Where, where are you um, located approximately? <clears throat> Sunny California, my friend. Sunny California. We're in like, we're, we're in 75% lockdown last I heard, but it could be changing. Things are changing every day here. Well, if you're going to be locked down, I guess California is a place to be. At least it's nice. (laughs) The weather must be nice. The view must be nice. It's, it's, there are worse places to be, I guess, in that respect for sure. So 75% lockdown, is that, how's, how's that affecting you um, specifically? Well, I mean, you know, as an actor, I'm sort of a, a recluse anyway. So it's no real adjustment from my my normal life because my wife and I write and create here in the home. So, and my work is uh, usually in other countries. That's the only significant impact on me so far is that I, I can't travel and I can't do my work in other states and countries like I normally do. But otherwise, it's just business as usual. This is what I do. I, I write at home. I, I study at home. I, I do podcasts from home. I go out and I and do my shopping and that's it. Yeah, it must be pretty rough when you realize the rest of the, the, rest of the world really doesn't want us at all <laughs> at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it sucks. But my wife has been stuck in Paris since uh, June. Oh, wow. So she's coming back for the Thanksgiving holiday, I think, and then has to go back and wait for her visa. Oh my God. Well, at least she's going to be there for Thanksgiving. That's, that's at least must be a load off your mind. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be nice. So what, what I found interesting about you when I was doing some research on you uh-huh. is that before you became an actor, you actually were studying marine biology. What, <laughs> what, 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 what was like when you went into college for marine biology, what was your goals at that moment? I was, I was a pretty diehard environmentalist. And so I guess I, my goals were to preserve and clean the oceans. Or I should say, clean and preserve the oceans. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I decided through college that that wasn't really my calling. I, in college, I got more interested in history and psychology than in the hard sciences. And so I drifted away from marine biology in the first year, pretty much. So what um, caused that shift to focusing more on, you said, history and less on the hard sciences? I don't know. You know, it's just one of those things where you just discover your tastes, you know, and, and I don't know whether whether those tastes are, are inherent and, and you stumble on them or or what. But I found the, the history and psychology courses in college to be just more interesting for me. And I don't think I have I, there's there's certain aspects of the sciences that I'm I'm very good at and other aspects I'm not so good at. So like, I don't think I'm great with spatial relationships, but I'm fantastic with abstractions. So, you know, algebra and chemistry were very good, easy for me, but physics was more difficult because I have problems with visualization and and seeing spatial relationships of things. So I think to the degree that you have to do that, bring that to the the marine biological sciences, I think... I just decided it was a, a weak, a weaker point for me, and I'd rather deal in the abstractions of psychology and history. <laughs> well, which does seem to fit better with your love of acting and running, I would imagine. Psychology, abstraction, uh, creation, more than hard facts. I think so. I think you're right. I, I always find it interesting when I listen when I talk to people on these interviews, and is I always have a philosophy that the paths that we take, it all possible paths, help you understand 
better where you are now. And I always and taking that as an idea, I always think like something, for instance, your original goal of marine biology, what you started, is there any through line between what talent, skills, abilities you learned from that as you started to what you did in history to where you are now as an actor? Anything that you can look back and saying, this helped me, even though it doesn't seem direct as a direct through line, help me be better at this other thing. I can't make any, I can't make any serious connections other than this. The passion that I felt, my, my love of marine biology was less scientific and more, more poetic, I would say. And maybe that's why I eventually bowed out because I wasn't a scientist. I was more a poet and an activist. And so that, that passion and love that I felt for nature is translated into other subjects. So, so perhaps it's that. Yeah, or maybe I could take this if, now that I'm thinking about it. You know, there is, you know, the, the, the passion that one has for uh, reality and truth it, you know, which has to be which has to be your guide in the sciences has carried over into my passion for reality and truth in acting and communication and in the philosophies that I discovered and in my assessments of history. So maybe that's another aspect that, that is carried over that I didn't even think about until you just uh, asked me the question. <laughs> yeah, I must say I, I can have a, a similar idea on that. When I went to college originally, I graduated with a focus on primatology as that was and I did that for a couple of years. I realized it wasn't the science of the thing I loved as much as the idea of it and the feeling of the exotic nature of it and maybe even, like I said, the, the natural aspect of it. I moved on to become an English teacher. And I, I think there's a similar idea where there's a question of difference between science and the idea of the thing itself. And I think it sounds like that's what you got caught into as well. I think you're right. And and I think that's And I, and I think that's also... For my students, if they if they do ever listen to the, to the to my personal podcast, I don't know if they do, but the idea that it's, <clears throat> you never know which direction you're heading in, so it's good to focus on learning as much as you can because you never really know what you're end up using later in your life. Hey, I think I think human beings are the one potential that's never actualized entirely. So you're always learning. You should never stop learning, ever. I I read. All the time. I read more now at 55 than I did at 25. Oh my God. So I, I, I don't think that you should, even if you get an advanced college degree, in some cases, if you get a high enough advanced college degree, your learning can't stop because you have to research and do academic work in order to make tenure. But, but in the case that you just you know graduate with, with a bachelor's or a master's even, don't think you know it. Just don't stop there. You, you, you know, the human, human, not only is human need insatiable, human need for knowledge is insatiable, and it should be insatiable in each individual. So and as far as your reading goes, where's your passions taking you now? I just purchased Will Durant's uh, Comprehensive History of Civilization, which is a 10-volume, Will and Ariel Durant's 10-volume uh, <laughs> compilation of history from the beginning of time, <laughs> recorded history to... Uh, I'm not sure when it ends. I'm not sure when Durant stopped writing. So maybe somewhere after World War II. That's that's uh, that's about ten thousand pages of history. I'm only now in the uh, Middle Kingdom of Egypt, so I've got a long ways to go. I also read. I've got. I, I read von Mises quite quite a bit. I don't know, I don't know, if, you know if you're familiar with Ludwig von Mises, but I'm reading his book on money right now. I'm reading a couple of philosophy. 
books. I'm reading Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay's book on how to have impossible conversations. I just finished James Lindsay's stuff on cynical theories, and I thought it was great. I've been I've been sort of obsessed with the with social academic activism now and its influence in culture. Not in a good way. I'm not obsessed in a good way. I'm obsessed, <laughs> I'm obsessed with undoing it and, and and sorting out the the reasons why it should be undone and why it's toxic. So I'm reading a lot of books about that right now, actually. Gad Sad's book, Dr. Gad Sad, is next with the parasitic mind. So basically <clears throat> some light reading. <laughs> That's my thing. Yeah. I'm also reading Edward Rutherford's book, London. I don't do you ever read read Rutherford at all? He he um, a, not yet. He's a fantastic writer. He writes about places. I've read Paris and New York, and, and now I'm reading London. And he, he follows lineages. You know, they're made-up lineages, of course, but these, these families of people starting at their basic origins and taking them from, in the case of London, we're, we're going from Druidic times and, 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 Roman, and the Roman invasion of the island of Brighton probably all the way into uh, past World War II or the 1970s. And he'll follow a family lineage all the way through their adventures. And it's pretty cool. He's a great writer. Yeah. So you're kind of like a Renaissance man. You're, you're looking, you're interested in um, politics, history, economics, psychology, yes. sociology. Yes. Is, is it just, are you fascinated with just the nature of society and individuals or are you reading it with a goal in mind? I do have a sort of vague goal. I consider, look, here's where my activism in marine biology has sort of permeated my, my activism in the current day. I, I, I'm, I, I feel like I am a rational warrior against a ever-deepening tide of skepticism. And, and I don't mean good skepticism where you, where you question things and you question your own premises. I'm talking about philosophical skepticism, which says reality is not knowable and you should doubt everything, that there's no such thing as certainty. And so I feel, I feel a little agita about that concept and I feel the uh, urge to battle it. And I do. I battle it all the time online. Oddly enough, I battle it as a skeptic. So I battle it as a, tell me why this is so, and I'll tell you my perspective. And some of the some of the philosophical arguments we get in online are pretty hellacious. Yeah, I, I would. I, I, was, I was just about to mention that you're one of the few um, celebrities that does feel fully comfortable to share political and social views in so, through social media. Has there ever been a, a concern that the impact of one impacts your profession? On the other hand, yeah. as a, a viewership, and is that even a factor for you? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course, there's a concern. And of course, it's a factor because people have tried to get me fired for my political concepts, not actually not my political concepts, their straw man version of my political concepts. So it's actually their narrative that they're posting in front of people to try to get me fired has nothing to do with me. And so the danger to me is in being misrepresented and in and in that misrepresentation being taken by my employer's not just as a po- the, the possibly real, but not having the cashews to push back. So I, I am very worried about, about the impact of that. But I also feel like we're in times where bully culture can't win. They can't, they can't intimidate you into silence. The more they try to intimidate you into silence, the more you actually have to speak up. You're obligated to, in my view. Has, do you think it has ever had an impact on jobs you receive or potential jobs that 
you, I don't know if you've lost any positions, but um, any jobs that you think you've gone and then been issues because of political, of politics? Because it does seem like cancel culture dominates our existence at this moment. And at the moment, it seems more important of where your, your reputation on social media seems almost more important than your actual ability to accomplish anything at this point. Yeah, that could be true. And, and I could lose opportunities as a result of that. That would be um, a shame, but that would be sort of a, that would sort of be typical for human, human <laughs> history. I hope that's not the case. I hope people are more interested in figuring out exactly what it is I stand for. So instead of trusting some uh, false narrative that's being spread about me, but I can't guarantee that. Is, was that the impetus of creating your current Kickstarter, which is the, called The Guardian Project? And can you explain to our listeners what that is? Yes, it was definitely inspired by successive waves of libeling and slandering me, hurling accusations at racist, homophobe, Islamophobe, every phobe and is you can come up with. Apparently, I am and have uh, committed some kind of sin under that moniker. All of them are false, of course, but, but that doesn't matter. And so for what those successive waves of cyberbullying and uh, harassment and libeling and slander have forced me to do, go on to podcasts to discuss my, my actual point of view, I've decided that that's, that's, that's quite a bit for, for people. You know, people are, people are disarmed, in, including check marks. Just because you're a check mark doesn't mean you have a lot of power. You're, you're as easily, if not more easily, taken down by these mobs than somebody who considers him or herself anonymous. And that's a fairly powerless position to feel, to feel uh, like you're in. And I don't want people to be that powerless anymore. I think anonymity makes people brave and makes them do crappy things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. If the victim that they were abusing was not an abstraction to them, and if they couldn't disappear back into the crowd after they did what they did with no repercussions. So that excited me into trying to f- develop ways to crush this concept of anonymity so that your identity is as known as mine. And, and that the, 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 the way we're starting it is by funding a, a, a potential television project a la Catfish, where we, we find victimizers and victims and uh, build a case and attempt to get justice for the victim which could be as gentle as a sort of reform on the part of the, on the, part of the uh, victimizer, or it could be something you know, more in the, in the legal realm of restitution and reconstitution of the, of the, of the victim's life, or whatever, whatever objective damages is, have, have been the result of the, of the libeling and slandering. But yeah, it did come out of successive waves of, of just horrible, horrible, extrajudicial trials and and punishments of me for things I didn't do and don't believe. So in, in watching your show, the do you think the viewers are going to be able to reflect and see themselves in the people you're talking about in the show? Or do you think people are incapable of looking at themselves and go, shit, that's how I behave. Maybe I should, you know, rethink how my behavior online. Do you think people are capable of that level of self-reflection? Uh, Yes, on, on both accounts. I think there are people that are capable of that level of self-reflection, and I think some of the worst abusers are not. I actually had a confrontation with one or two of them the other day, and I actually think they are sophisticated sociopaths and probably have no inkling that what they're doing is wrong. They're, they're, as, they're as motivated and as justified as any brown shirt in Nazi Germany was doing what they did. 
And But they're not the types of people I'm trying to reach anyway. The overwhelming majority of people will have enough of a conscience to see themselves in the things that are happening and perhaps change their behavior. I, I, I do wonder if some of the issues we do have on social media is connected to... I think a lot of people who are doing this canceling culture stuff and some of these attacks view themselves as being kind of connected to liberal outrage when instead it feels more like straight on bullying. And I'm not sure if people quite realize the difference between sharing your point of view or disagreement and the attack or the feeling of cast this individual out for having this view. And I'm not sure if even people realize they're doing that necessarily. I don't think modern philosophy and academics equips them to make the distinction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I, think, I think a long time ago, reason has been taking a backseat to another form of deciphering reality, and that's emotions. And once we've gone there, well, there's, no, there's going to be no common standard for anything. And the other one I find fascinating with it as well is that people seem to not have the patience or the ability to accept a possibility of a level of redemption, even if that's a, a thing. The idea that instead of explaining to a person where they believe they're wrong, they're more they're not willing to open the idea of, well, the person can potentially learn something they didn't know previously. And instead of the attack, maybe you should figure out if maybe it's in these mis- issues or misunderstandings or even a lack of information. I mean, there are a lot of issues, I think, that most of us are not, I think, engaged in that part of the society enough to be up to date on the changes it within there. And I think there should be, I don't know, I don't know if there's like a patience in the, let's say, the culture for that kind of stuff. That, that makes sense. I think you're right. But I think along with this, along with emotional reasoning, comes skepticism because no, there is no objective standard for, for anything. And along with the skepticism is a degree of determinism where uh, human beings are just biological things. They exist in these uh, as units within this whole, and it's the whole that influences them. There's no such thing as free will. I mean, many neuroscientists are now coming out with this beautiful piece of information. And so if you're just a determined vat of chemicals who whose race and economic status are what really define you, and there's nothing really you can do within the realm of choice that can change anything. It's like the current batch of social justice warriors are like the Calvinists of, of 17th and 18th century America. They believe in predestination, you know, and, and, but, but it's called determinism, and there's no redemption. If, 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 if God already knows who's going to heaven and nothing you do is going to change that, there's, you know, there's no, there's no real concept then of sin and redemption. And so you can, you can say something five years ago that was perfectly legitimate, or at least not considered uh, evil, and somebody could bring that up today as if, and judge you by the today's standard, even though you did something five years ago, because, hey, you're a, you're a determined being and you're already going to hell. There's nothing you can do to make up for this. That actually, that's a fascinating concept, the idea of determinism, determinism. And it does make you think, once again, if you already are determined whether or not you're, let's say, going to heaven or hell, it does seem to also excuse any behavior because it's where you're headed anyway, doesn't it? It takes away your 
awareness or guilt in any situation because it means you don't have to worry because you're heading that direction. It's not your fault. It's what you are. You could look at it that's uh, from that angle for sure, but I see I see it more in the in the on the aggressive aggressors side. You are this. You are, and they'll categorize you in something that's less than human, as, as in some category that's less than human, and that excuses their aggression. So, since you are in this category, it excuses aggression. Since I'm in this category of intersectionality, let's say, and I have X number of uh, victim categories that I'm subsumed under, I am I'm not culpable for anything that I do to you. So it's and maybe that's what you were saying in the in the short term, but you're right. There, it's definitely reducing our capacity to take responsibility for our actions. On, and, 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 on both it, sides. and it does, I think, also end any level of communication. I always think that the worst thing you can do in any conversation is attack the individual because that does end the conversation right there immediately. It's really it it, it, it boxes the person in a way that it, it prevents them from listening to you any longer because once again once you're on the defensive you're no longer interested in the conversation you're now fully in defense mode in my opinion this is true and that's why i'm going to plug peter bogosian and james Lindsay's book again how to have impossible conversations i don't know if i plugged that or if that was the last show i just did but, uh, <laughs> yes i'm i'm actually almost done with that with that with that book and it's fantastic yeah. The, the only thing I found kind of interesting, I don't know how much time you have, but if you want to dive just a little bit into it, I found it fascinating that I think you may be the only actor I know of who's actually founded his own political party. You're <laughs> a member of the American Capitalist Party, and I was, I was looking into it, but what are the primary tenets of that party? And what do you think it, what it offers that I would say, I'm always about to use a comic book reference, the big two, Republicans and Democrats, are not offering? I think, if anything, this election season has highlighted one thing to me. You can tell me if I'm wrong or not. It has highlighted that we are faced with a, a tribal system wherein two tribes appear to be extreme rivals. In fact, they're not. They're quibbling a lot over power and who gets to hold the reins of power so that they can, you know, so that they can exercise it over the particular things that, that their, their own particular preferences. But in essence, they agree on a certain ethics. They, they agree that the individual does not exist as a viable entity. The group does, and the individual's purpose is to serve that group. Now, the left has a particular group that it thinks the individual has to serve, and the right has its particular groups that it thinks the individual has to serve. And they only disagree on which groups you are to serve and in what manner and how much. But so to that degree, I see tribes who agree. I see Democrats and Republicans as essentially one party with, with degrees of expression. So, and that's what motivated me and my friend, uh, Joe Sanders, to come up with a third party. Of course, third parties don't have a very strong tradition in America. And, and so we didn't necessarily think it was a winning proposition, at least not in, in the first decade or so of its development. We just thought that it was important that consistent, a consistent political ideology was put out there that was consistently individualistic 
and consistently pro-right, not pro-right wing, but pro-right as in the mitigation of violence in, in the world. And we can't find that in, in libertarianism because that's just the flip side in its consistent expression of the tribalism that we're seeing on the left and the right. The, the flip side is an anarchistic, atomized individualism that, that doesn't really measure, that measures liberty as an end instead of a means to an end. And it's, it's sort of an insane alternative to the insanity in the establishment political world. And so the, the desire to have a, a complete political philosophy out there in the world, at least so that people could refer to it, was our original plan. And so we got a, a philosopher, Andrew Bernstein, who's written some amazing books on capitalism, to, to write our platform. And he wrote it, and we've put it out there so that people can read it and look at it. And I've tried to get a couple of grassroots uh, politicians involved. It's a little bit difficult when you don't have an actual apparatus or money to back you up. And, <laughs> and, and, and you're telling them that they're going to have to do all the legwork on the ground of getting signatures and, and stuff. Nobody really wants to do that. But it'll have its day. I think, I think people are so disillusioned with... The, they're disillusioned inappropriately with the two-party system because I do believe politics is binary. I, I think there are there are degrees of statism that exists on a scale, but there's no degrees of liberty. You're either free or not. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm sorry. So go ahead. So, I mean, obviously, the the way society this country is built, it seems like it's built to perpetuate a two party system. So, with your with the American Capitalist Party, how do you envision it progressing in the short term and long term? And do you feel it at the local level? It's at its strongest. It's better. Is it better as a voice to, let's say, move the conversation? What, what's your path on this? Well, what I was hoping was that we could somebody would get elected under one of the two main parties and then switch their denomination when they were in there to our our party. I, I think that it's probably going to have to start at the local level. I think that the libertarianism sort of acquired some success by starting at, at the local level. They fail miserably, I think, on the national level for, I think, obvious reasons. But And, and then from there, it's just going to have to grow. And, and it has to go in a state, it has to start in a state where there is at least some sort of fertile ground for a consistent point of view about individual rights and liberty to take root. And that's certainly not California. I don't. There's there's a few states around that we've that we've looked at as possibilities, but then it's just a matter of convincing somebody to go through the <laughs> the in, the incredible work that would it would take to battle the two parties. Because once once you announce your candidacy and come on as a third party, the duopoly comes after you with their legal apparatus, and they make your life a living hell. Is there a potential then that you would be that candidate? If I, I feel like if politics were were about ideas, I would. But politics are not about ideas anymore. We've had a spoil system for you know a hundred plus years, and really people are voting. Politicians get constituencies based on what they can take from other constituencies and give to their pals or their supporters. And it's become voting has become a low level civil war. What can I get? Can my guy get in and control the levers of power so he can get shit from me? 
Um, and that's what it is. People fighting each other for a piece of the fucking uh, political pie. So, and, and reading a little bit about your background, you are, I guess, what would be referred to as an objectivist. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so on, uh, I'm, I'm going to say the last name. Is it um, Ayn Rand? Am I understanding? Yes. That? Yes. Ayn Rand. Uh, is that the core of the American Capitalist Party's philosophy? I would say that our ethics is based on objectivist ethics for sure. And our politics and economics are revolving around representative, constitutionally limited uh, republic and capitalism. Yes, the, those are sort of the mainstays of those schools of philosophy to an objectivist. So I feel like when people discuss objectivism, there seems to be something potentially misconstrued or something that probably could be better explained. It feels like objectivism is often the philosophy of individual first, individual go beyond, beyond the need of the group itself. Is that close to a philosophy of it, or is it a misunderstanding that often is associated with objectivism? Yeah, that's a misunderstanding. In, in other words, we're f- they, the, the, the people that like to frame these discussions put us in, uh, in a, a false dichotomy, in the middle of a false dichotomy. You, to be selfish is to sacrifice people to yourself, the alternative to being that megalomaniacal, malignant narcissist is to sacrifice yourself to others. And that is a dichotomy that we deny completely. We say that any group is, the group itself is an abstraction. The group is composed of individuals. And there is a, a, a individ, individual human beings need specific conditions to thrive and applying an understanding of those conditions into a social, in a social setting is what we arrive at with constitutionally restrained government and free exchange of ideas and products, which we call capitalism and ownership of property. Because the source of all values is the individual working for his own life, like every other living creature does. And with and every individual that I know, at least, and let, you may know some different ones, I don't know, every individual that I know has a whole host, universe, or world of, of human beings that they support and interact with and, and value. You know, our housekeeper had, uh, had just, just got pneumonia. And I've been pestering, I don't know where she lives, I've been pestering her on the phone to give me her address and, and give me a shopping list so I can go shop for her. I'm an objectivist, that's weird. I thought you're just supposed to be about yourself. Well, myself is a world that includes my animals, my wife, my kids, their friends, my friends, people who work for me, people who like me, people who don't, that's me. That individual is composed of tons of different dimensions. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, I, I can't say it's not, not a deliberate misapplication of her ideas. I think it's on purpose. I think it's, it's, a, it's a way to try to, to tune you off of the notion that individualism is good. Now, so within the construct of objectivism, the idea of it, do social programs have a place? Not, pub, not state social programs. Okay. In other words, a state social program is accompanied by one thing, which I find very uncivil force. Okay. So if, if, but, but would, would people help others? Of course, before there was a welfare state, there were 
there are mutual aid societies and foundations, charitable organizations, and there's, and there's still a plethora of those today, even though the market has been taken out by the public sector. And as, as always happens with the public sector, the public sector makes it impossible for the private sector to, to function efficiently the way it could, because it, it takes all the oxygen out of the room. But the beauty of charity is that nobody is compelling anybody to do anything. Everything you do is from your own free will and from your own values without force. And to me, the, the essential definition of civilization is the mitigation of force. Force is, in a, real, in a true, truly civil society, force is sidelined. It's, it's defined and restrained, and, and it only has one moral use. Any other use of it is not moral. Even if, you're, even if your end, you, you, even if you claim your end is moral, the use of violence to achieve it is not moral. So it sounds like objectivism has a very idealistic view of people. In other words, given the opportunity to do whatever you want, I'm not, that's a little bit, bit of an extreme example. You can't, do it, you can't do whatever you want. You can, that's, not consi- that's libertarianism. Libertarianism holds liberty as an end. So what, what, what is freedom? The freedom to do whatever you want. We understand that liberty is a condition for a rational being. So what you, what, what's good is that which is good for a rational being. Not any whim, not anything you want to do. What's good for you is a, a rational being. So, so we have to perceive, if we're going to talk about objectivism, we have to talk about, it's not about doing what you want. It's about doing what's rational. But you also have the choice. There is the danger in a free society that people will not be rational. Well, I guess one question, kind of the point I was trying to, to go to on that is, it, it would assume that people are going to do the right thing, given the opportunity to not do the right thing. They'll still choose to do the right thing towards others. Is that... Where, where but... But you're, I think you're making presumptions about what the right thing to do towards others is. Okay, fair enough. And, and I think all of that is, is, can't be answered. And this is not, I'm not claiming a non-objective answer here. I'm saying that th- that's entirely contextual and it's dependent upon the context of each individual. Okay. How much they, if you, if you, if you consider giving to others a good, then then that being able to do that is dependent on a lot of conditions in your own life. Of course, I think, I think that by virtue of being a productive and rational person in society, you are automatically just by living and producing, excuse me, creating value for other people. Okay. But it's not your, it's not your goal. It's like, it's not the, it's not the butcher's goal, for example, to, 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 to serve you his goal is to send his kids to college. His goal is to, you know, have a, a house, to, a nice house that he, to live in. But in, in trying to achieve those values for himself, in a, in a cooperative system of free exchange, he has to produce value to do that. And he has to produce a value that I want and can exchange with him on in order to do that. So without being quote unquote charitable, because I don't consider charity to be a virtue, or, or if it is, it's a very minor one. I consider pr- productivity and reason to be virtues because we can't exist without those. And virtues are things that human hu- the, are the foundation of human life. Without virtues, without particular virtues, human life would be impossible. And charity is a, is a wonderful, uh, I think, impulse. 
And I think the benevolent impulse of anybody who's not harassed and harangued and beaten down by his neighbor, but who is free, uh, the charitable impulse is quite, quite, quite a, a big impulse. And that's why I think Americans in general tend to be the most generous society on earth. There's no mistake because we're the, one of the freest society, or have, used to be one of the freest societies on earth, and that tends to make you charitable. Have you ever watched, this sounds like a, I'm going way off, but it, it's, I'm going to connect it back in. Have you ever watched the TV show Friends in the 90s? Yeah. There was that one episode about the idea of, is there any such thing as an altruistic act, a truly altruistic act? Mm-hmm. And does objectivism connect to the idea that people are inherently altruistic or that because we are looking for to satisfy our needs, it does connect then to the connection of society around us. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, I don't think anyone's inherently altruistic, nor do I think that there is no such thing as an altruistic act. But then again, I'm not, remember, I'm not measuring things by your emotional feeling, yeah. right? So you may feel that blowing up those, those, those children mm-hmm. will, will land you in heaven and, and you'll have many virgins. And, and so then some philosopher somewhere can say, see how it wasn't an altruistic act. He, he expected an end that's, that there's, this, this isn't altruism because he expected something out of it. I don't, I, don't, I don't buy that metric. To me, you can sacrifice, meaning you can give up a greater value for a lesser value. You can harm yourself d- deliberately and choose that as a moral code, the code of loss and, and pain and suffering as a center of your value system and the relief of suffering and the existence of suffering as dependent on, uh, on for the practice of your value system. But it's, it's not, it, it, there's no sense that because you feel really good about hurting yourself or giving things up for other people that it's a selfish act. Now, selfish is, a, is an objective metric it's, 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 you're not, you're not giving something up by not going to the party and studying for your finals instead. That's not a sacrifice. You're working for your values. Anytime you're working for your values, objective values, meaning not just, I feel this and therefore it's good, but objective value, studying for a test to get an A so that you can, you can embark on the career you want to embark on is an objective value. Eating properly because you know it's healthy for your, your body is an objective value. Not, not drinking so much because you know it's harmful for your body. Those are objective, those are objective values. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think, there, I, I don't think that, that, old, that, that saying there's no such thing as an altruistic act is true. So, so another aspect of objectivism, I, I might butcher the idea, but um, I'm doing my best, is the idea that it's the role of art in human life, the idea that art is meant to... Um, and I think this is an exact quote, transform humans' metaphysical idea by selective reproduction of reality to a physical form. Do you think the importance of what you do as an actor connects a little bit to your philosophy as well? The idea that you're trying to portray these ideas so they can be brought into the world, discussed, and given some sort of tangible form? Or am I misunderstanding the idea of it completely? I mean, I think, I think when Rand just defined art in the Romantic Manifesto, she was right. She's saying that art is this, whether you know it or not, or think it or not, or whether or not that's the topic of discussion or not, doesn't matter. Art is a concretization of values. And so when you see a play like Cyrano de Bergerac, it's concretizing certain values and saying, this is the most important thing in the world. 
Uh, one of the one of the examples that I thought she used that I thought profoundly expressed this was if you paint if you see a painting with a, a beautiful woman in an elegant evening gown, that says one thing about the artist's sense of life, about their sense of what matters in the world. If you see that same painting, the artist has put a herpes sore on her lip, he's making a very different statement about what's important in the world. In fact, he's probably saying that all your attempts at glamour and beauty are, 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 are what's the word I want to use? It's frivolous. They, 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 can't, they can't work because you'll be undone by a little virus. <laughs> and you'll see that... Art largely, art largely is that, it, you know, the person who, who, who paints a beautiful painting like Renoir was, you know, who I don't think was ever satisfied with his painting, but loved beauty in painting. You see it in his paintings. And, and you also see the dissembler and, and the, the person who's trying to rip apart values or the nihilist or just the emotionalist. And they're saying something about reality. What they're putting on the canvas is, is this is my notion of what is of what's metaphysically important. And your and the taste your taste in art, what you respond to, I think tells you a lot about what you value. So I think she's correct in her in her understanding of what art is and what its relationship is to people and I think you see it as an actor, you see it in the narratives that we produce. In the heroes and the types of heroes there are, the types of villains there are, that says something about the philosophy and the ethics of the people writing the show and the, and and if it's a popular show about about the society at large. So when you're choosing your roles, is that something you're considering? No. Okay. What no, was your consideration? Putting bread and onions on the table. <laughs> okay. At least that's, <laughs> that's honest. I mean, you, you do seem to have a theme with your roles. Jacob in Lost, Lucifer in Supernatural. I can't remember the character and the name of the character from Being Human. But you, you do seem to have a connection to some sort of supernatural, maybe almost godlike characters. Is, is that something that just appeals to you directly? Or that just seems to be the roles you're seeing. I think that's just an accident. But what I what I find more what I'm more connected with in those parts is all of those characters are to some degree alienated. They're they're to some degree rejected, but also very powerful and striving and striving to make the world in their vision. Intensely moral in 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 all of those cases, believe it or not, and in in that respect, I feel very much like that. I mean, as an as an objectivist in Hollywood, I'm out of step. As an objectivist in in the in the tribal world today, I'm out of step because I'm an individualist. I spent half of my time this election season on on Facebook making enemies of my friends on the left and the right <laughs> because <laughs> I got so I got so sick of their bullshit. I just started calling them all out. And, and so I was very much alone. Now, a lot of people would secretly call me and say, wow, what you're doing is amazing, or I'm learning so much about, I've never thought about this in this way before, and it's really helping me. And that was, nice, that was a nice relief, but mostly I got grief. I got people who, I got people who didn't want to engage or, or check their own premises. And that includes me. I'm not saying, I know everything, listen to me. No, they would say something that I thought was tribal, and then I would ask a question. And then we would go from there. We would delve into what they meant and where they were going with it and what I mean and where I'm going with it. And I would, I would often, you know, come out on top in these encounters, 
but not I didn't feel on top. I felt like I just alienated somebody, even though I wasn't attacking them. I was questioning them like Socrates would question somebody. But, you know, Socrates was a gadfly. He was a pain in the ass, right? That's why why they all rose up against him and voted him uh, off the island, so to speak. Well, I I, I get the feeling people don't like their arguments brought back at them at all. And I I would imagine that in many cases, people do not enjoy their views questioned. You're right. They don't. And you know what? I would never do it. But I would never presume to do that in ordinary times. But because we're in extraordinary times, and I saw both sides saying false things as if they were real, I had to just step in and, and, and say, it was actually in the spirit of reconciliation, believe it or not. It was actually trying to get both sides to see you're wrong. And maybe if you guys looked at each other instead of talking past each other, you'd see it. Do you think people get too wound up in defining themselves by their views? I don't see how you cannot. I mean, when, when it comes to politics, politics, is, you know, that, that stupid right wing guy said politics is downstream from culture. That's a semi idiotic thing to say, in my point of view. It's downstream from ethics. And what are ethics but your values? The value, you, what you think is important in the world, how you think men and women and whatever your identity is should treat one another. That is your politics. It's your social ethics. So when you, when you question somebody's politics, you're questioning their, their, their evaluation of life. That's a deep thing. How can you not, how can you not be married to it <laughs> and, and, <laughs> ide- and identify with it? Because if somebody's saying your politics are wrong, they're saying you're wrong. It, it feels a little bit like almost like religion where it's an act of faith. And I, sometimes I would almost imagine your politics is an act of faith that once you get that shook, it's very unnerving. <clears throat> yeah, only because, look, I don't think people, we've been taught from kindergarten through college that the most important decisions we make have to be made with what? I would say a, a moral. or with, with what? I would say our morals have to be decided whether they're right or wrong. Whenever I, I watch a movie about somebody who's in, is, is in a, a dilemma that they need to sort out. Whenever I read a story, the advice that is always given to them is follow your heart. Yeah. Follow your heart. So, it, but, but following your heart means not really integrating information very well. Your heart is, your heart is just the sum total of integrated information and evaluations about the world, some of which you may not even know why you feel the way you do. You have to really investigate the sources of those feelings. And so people have taken that notion of following your heart into their politics. And so their politics is about an inch deep. They haven't really sussed out the consequences of their thoughts very deeply. They've just superficially said, I have a good heart. I think this is right, and that's it. But if they integrated all of their political concepts with, with their ethics and they, and they made a conscious choice about, about what ethics means, what its purpose is, and relationally what, what the purpose of politics is, I, I bet most of them would change their minds wherever they are, wherever they land on the left-right scale. I bet most of them would not be where they are today. I mean, I think that's I think that's fantastic, and I think another thing interesting about your characters that you do play is that you do have a chance to look at these questions on a literally on a massive scale. 
in many ways, I think one of the fascinating things what you did with the character of Lucifer and Supernatural is that you had a character that quite often throughout the story is arguing a philosophy. Not necessarily that I'm, that he's, you know, I'm not wrong, but I'm trying to argue, you know, I have definitely a philosophy that I have. And my issue is that I'm being attacked for it. And he's kind of been outcast for an idea as well, but it's also on a massive scale. And obviously there's some aspects around it, but he definitely, the Supernatural presented him as almost the paradise lost version of Lucifer. The idea that he is in some ways the hero of his own story is just depending on where you are in that story depends on whether or not you agree with the idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I always saw Lucifer as the first rebel against arbitrary authority and he was the one who stood up against uh, God and said no. And he said no for a doggone good reason. He didn't want to serve a lesser being. And what was a lesser being? A flawed, immoral thing, which, the, which the, it, was, it was impossible for the angels to be flawed and immoral, which is a contradiction in terms, but that's, that's, another, that's another thing. It doesn't matter. We deal with paradoxes with religion. And, and, so, and so I think, he was, I think he was intensely moral. And let's not forget that he gave hu- humanity its moral sense. So I do consider him to be a rather noble character, even though he's not painted that way in Western canon. When you look at the, the character of Lucifer from that perspective, do you believe that one of his concerns was that to connect with people were, was inherently to be corruptive? Yeah. Yeah, I, thought, I, I think he felt humans were, were beneath him. And, and it was probably better to just get them out of the way. And, but obviously, in doing so, he became himself some level corrupted. Oh yeah. Well, look, I'm not endorsing Lucifer's way of doing things. No, 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 no. Because I think, because I think, I think, I think, I think humans in many respects turn out to be better and they do in supernatural too. They defy, they defy God just like Lucifer did, but they're better because they have free will and, and the Lucifer of, of the show supernatural is sort of like, like, like someone who's, for whom trauma has has them stuck at a certain emotional level of development. Lucifer's never gone beyond that. I think Lucifer could be tri- could be cured with with about two years of cognitive <laughs> behavioral therapy, and as it's mostly even though he has his foot in the door of right, even though it's appropriate to defy arbitrary authority and to say no and to stand for virtue, uh, it's not appropriate to hold a grudge for an eternity <laughs> and, to, uh, and to condemn innocent people who have done nothing to you, have, have participated zero in your downfall to hold them accountable for what happened to you. That's just insanity. Yeah, there's a great line of, uh, in regards to the corrupt ability of free will in a char- the character Castiel in season six. He said that free will is a length of rope that God lets you hang yourself with. And I kind of feel like that's kind of what happened to Lucifer on some level. He was given a length of rope um, to think, feel ideas, debate, question. And it was that that created the first difficulties that he had. And didn't know, and it was never given the ability to know how to deal with those contradictions. Well, you know, you know, people, people can do with their trauma what they choose. They can, they can become creative, productive human beings or intensely destructive and nihilistic, and Lucifer chose that path. 
And, and I think the one thing I think I, lo- I loved about what you did with the character of of Lucifer is that you did your performance with the character was extremely nuanced. And I think because you played it so many different versions of the character on some level, you played Nick before he's possessed. Then you played Lucifer, your version of Lucifer, because I know you played by, we'll go into later how you played by different characters. Then you played Lucifer after his return. And then Nick, after having dealt with the possession of Lucifer, and you had to play each version of that very carefully, I felt like, and very, you had to, and you portrayed each one very uniquely. And what was kind of how you thought about how you would make your, what decisions you made on those changes keep in mind the changes to the character and how you were going to perform it. Well, I mean, season, season five Lucifer was a very formidable creature. And I liked season five Lucifer. Yes. He had, a, he had a very understated and subtle sense of humor, which was great, but he was burning with intensity and purpose. And he was not going to be taken off his path. I, I like that about him. And there was a regal, princely quality to him that really comes out in his confrontation with Castiel when he tries to bring Castiel over to his side by saying, look, we have, we have the same cause. You were kicked out of heaven. I was kicked out of heaven. We, can't, we should be friends. Don't fight me. You should be my friend. And Castiel stands for the humans. There was, there was, a, there was an air of, the, of a prince in that in that in that confrontation that you know because he's looking at Castiel like I know you you're that little guy that used to bring the shoes over to my dad yeah (laughs) it was that sort of thing and and there was tremendous stature in that and then he kills all the pagan gods it just made his it he was just so formidable and then then there was a transition to a different Lucifer the Lucifer in Sam's head and that Lucifer was a much smaller Lucifer he might have still had the plans, you know, that the big, that the, the big Lucifer had, but he didn't have the stature and the strength and the, and the focus. He was, he was more like the trickster. Yeah. And, and I think it's because, you know, the Lucifer in, it, it was written more, it was just written in a jokey way, in a fun way. Yeah. And, and so that brought out those characteristics more, than the other thing. And so by that, the, the Lucifer had changed from something dark and scary to something sort of, sort of funny and to, and to be sort of taken seriously because you saw that other dark side in him in season five and you would see bursts of temper and stuff, but it really wasn't the same Lucifer from that time on. The Lucifer, Lucifer sort of became grandiose. He could talk a big game, but when it came time to deliver, I mean, it was always a bit of a letdown. And, and, and so as much as I love that Lucifer for his, his naivete and his, his funniness, because he was funny, I think, I think he was funny. I missed the, I, I, I missed the, the King Lucifer as much as I liked the impish Lucifer. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I, I really do feel that they definitely, when, when they weaken the character uh, physically, I do feel like they weaken the character because once again, you had a you you lost the, that sinister aspect, that danger to the character, and I felt that was kind of unfortunate later on. And I, but I guess at the same time, I felt maybe if you kept Lucifer at the level he, where he was in season five, he would dominate basically any season he appears in. 
I guess would be maybe the other that, issue. Maybe that, that could be. I mean, like I would, I remember in my scenes with Crowley, I would think to myself, well, Lucifer's not the smartest guy in the room and he has to be. Yeah. I mean, he's, he'll, he'll beat Crowley because he's got the clout and he's, but he, and he's playing a, a, a war, art of war, Sun Tzu's art of war. But season five, Lucifer wouldn't have these reactions. He wouldn't be this way. It would be very frightening and you wouldn't want to be in the same room with him. And, but look, I liked the evolution. It, it, was, it was a separate character. It was its own thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why people thought Nick was so much more frightening. Not only because he was a real human being and real, real monsters are scarier than the made up kind, but he was really, he had that lust for power. He had something in him that was insatiable the way Lucifer did, just expressed differently, you know? Do you think Nick became that way because he was possessed by Lucifer or was he that way because of the incident? Obviously, um, the storyline, he had his daughter and wife killed. Was he always going to, would he always have been turned into that kind of Nick or was it Lucifer's possession that made him into that Nick? You see, there, there's an interesting sort of level. There's two levels here that were sort of incompatible to me. When you, when you first meet Nick in season five, you you understand him as a character who might have been devout and decent and but who got punished anyway who who was who got this who this terrible thing happened to and he harbored a resentment for god it wasn't just a resentment it was a hatred for god now that's somebody who has loved somebody intensely and been betrayed so i assumed nick was a very devout person and then went over the deep end because of the tragedy experience but what we find out in the later latter seasons is that he wasn't there. He was getting drunk. He was sort of a, he was a sketchy character himself. He had issues. Yeah. And he wasn't as, he wasn't as pure and as simple as I thought he was in season, season five. And I think his, his acquaintance with Lucifer, the fact that Lucifer was inside of him and that he, a part of Nick, whether it's just in his, his, his reflexes or his bones or his muscles, remembered that unbridled power and that that sense that I could do anything and not experience the repercussions. That's a very seductive thing. And so I think that those character flaws in Nick were definitely accentuated by the Lucifer experience. And he sought Lucifer like a drug addict seeks drugs. He, he, he made the choice with his ghost wife sitting, standing right there. He could have made the choice to set her free, and he chose power instead. Do you think it would have been – when you're thinking about the character of Nick, do you think he was more fascinating as the pure faith uh, fallen individual, or did you like the fact that he added the flaws later on? Do you think that – I mean, from an action standpoint or from uh, interest in your own character? I mean, I like flaws. I, I like complexity and dimensions to things, and – and the clues that writers give you to fill fill in those things, and it, it forced me to explore the character of Nick in a way that I I hadn't had to explore Lucifer. You know, I had to write. I wrote like a full journal that I could probably publish as a book. That in the day in the life of 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 Nick after after these after this horrible thing happened, and and so that was very it was very very interesting exploration for me on the other hand on the other hand i like mystery and and i like mystery and and not knowing 
Nick so much as I was able to supply my own intuitive sense of what he meant. And there was a, there was a, there was just a subtleness to the, to that, to that character, you know, I think that bled over even into his later iteration, but it was just, I mean, so so what I guess I'm trying to say is both were interesting in their own ways, (laughs) very different, but I can't decide, I can't decide which was the better one. You didn't see enough of Nick to really know too much about him in the first, first viewing. I can guarantee that the fans of Supernatural would love to read that journal that you wrote. (laughs) I think that'd be fascinating for, for, for the fan base. I've asked um, them if they want me to publish it. Some some have said yes. So maybe I Oh, won't. nice. That, that'd be fantastic. A couple more questions. I love the line in Swan Song where Lucifer states, most people think I burn hot. It's actually quite the opposite. And then he makes that symbol in the window when he breathes on it. Yeah. I think that was the most interesting take on Lucifer because it does kind of, at least how I understood it, was that it meant that he was kind of callous, cold, calculating. And I think that feels somehow more... Um, dangerous than if he's just hot-tempered. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Vengeance is a dish better served cold, right? It's uh, That's the scary person, the person who can plot and sit there and the, the sniper who can wait for five days for you to come out of your house yeah. and, and watch you without blinking like a reptile. That's the scary dude. The hot-tempered guy is, you know, you see him coming from a mile away. So you're right. That is scary. <laughs> and, and and I and I it's kind of I always for some reason I always thought about the Robert Frost um, poem Fire Fire and Ice. Does the world end fire or in ice? And I and and I think the idea of the world ending in ice the it's it's a definitely more interesting possibility. I think I'm probably more realistic too. Mm-hmm. Like kind of what I think about the idea of this kind of almost cold indifference, callousness is what is actually the most dangerous aspect of us and people as well. The fact if you can determine and think only of your goal and not worry about, you know, the consequences of what you're doing that actually makes you a far more dangerous individual potentially. Right into the guardian project. It sort of swerves into that. Cause I, I think that's, that's what's so dangerous about social media bullies and these people who pass off false narratives. They are just into their mission. They don't care about you. Do, do, do you think that it, the, do you think that's a particular symptom of of the because of social media, or do you think, given the opportunity, this is just inherent? Though, no, I think I think social media is. I, I think I think what's happening on social media is symptomatic of the, the culture wide em, embrace of emotionalism, the rejection of reason, rampant subjectivism and cynicism, determinism, all all these isms that are now pushing culture, our culture in a certain way. This is what makes dialogue impossible. It makes, we have no shared metric for information. If your metric is your emotional reasoning and mine is objective reality, we're not going to meet anywhere. And if you, and if you claim there is no objective reality, if you claim all knowledges are, are equal, then how can you have a discussion with somebody who thinks physics is knowledge or who thinks alchemy is is just as valid a form of knowledge as chemistry? I don't know. Yeah. You can't you can't have a conversation with that person. Uh, to, to use a completely geeky uh, geek out analogy, I kind of feel like social media is a little bit like I don't know if you watch any of the Captain America the movie the idea of the super serum where whatever it does it basically magnifies any character issue that you have and wherever your character is it literally amplifies it. So if you're good like Captain America became ultra patriotic, if you're bad like the Red Skull, that part of you 
it becomes visible almost. And I kind of feel social media is that same thing as that super serum. Whoever you are in your regular life, the moment you log in, you now become an amplified, amp, amplified version of that person on some yeah, level. I'd buy that. And so, and I, and I think your guardian project, I think it, it has fantastic potential. I think do you, what, what is, do you think the timetable on this from, cause I, I assume you're going to probably hit your goal. It looks like you're on your way um, between goal hitting it. And then eventually the show be, moving into production. Sometimes these things can take anywhere from a year to five years. I hope the sooner the better, but we're going to be, we're going to be attacking this from a di- bunch of different areas. So the show is one aspect and that's what the Kickstarter is for, but I'd also like legal reform. I'd like to talk to social media platforms about objective standards for communication, full verification of people splitting platforms so that people under 18 have their own platform that's monitored by their parents and has strict controls. People over 18 have verification and, and do this while maintaining privacy, but also taking away that finding a way to do it, finding a way to take away anonymity without removing privacy. Because I think anonymity is what's causing all the viciousness. What do you think about what's happening with, I don't know how aware you have of uh, Parler, the, the new Twitter Parler, the fact yeah. that it feels like it's, a, it's the next step to creating two separate realities. Parler seems to be the next evolution of th- that direction, where you will now have two people through social media, two groups, living their own Pacific universe or reality. I mean... I, yeah, I mean, I think w- we have the technology to be able to do that. It's unfortunate that we can't mix, but I, I think I think the major social media platforms are going to start losing lots of people. I mean, even people on the political left who are dominating it. I know lots of liberals on the left who are leaving the platform because of its toxicity. And unless the Twitter in particular gets its shit together and is able to come up with objective means of, of uh, and, 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 a, and a easier way, or a, uh, let me say, not easier way, but a, a, uh, a more permanent way of, of kicking people off platforms and across platforms so that bad actors can't just, you know, come up with another handle with a bogus email and get on and continue to, to do their damage. They're going to continue to see market alternatives to their platforms that I think will eventually overcome them. I mean, I, I would definitely hope so. Cause I, I do find it unfortunate. It almost, it's almost like a surrender. The fact that we are so that things cannot be handled to the point where everyone needs to run to their own different plat- social media platforms to talk to one another it would definitely be a failing of our society. I think. I think so too, but I, you know, I mean, I, I, I am, I have a presence on, on parlor. I don't go on that much, but, and I don't carry on conversations that much on parlor. And I know it has a reputation for being sort of a right wing. You know, they, of course, everybody characterizes the the opposition in the worst possible, least charitable light. But I think the idea there is that everybody's verified in a way. Your identity, your identity is sort of known, and and you can't. the The discourse is not mean, and I'll take that. I'll take that. I mean, I only have 12,000 followers on there because once again, I, since I don't belong to the right wing, I often say things <laughs> that the right wing does, <laughs> doesn't like, but I'm okay with that. They don't, they don't harass me for not saying things that they don't like. They don't attack me. Like the left will try to, you know, the left will start a petition to try to fire me in every job that I go for. 
The right will just go, eh, whatever. We don't believe you. We don't, uh, whatever. That's or some of them. Will, some of them will actually turn around. It's. I mean, it's an odd. It's an odd time we're living in because I feel like the people who, you know, liberalism brought us all the great advancements in society, but but at some point liberalism took a turn to Jacobinism and it became something very different. And and there, I think I think. There is a clear embrace in our culture from the late 20s, early 30s on, but uh, but it's been tightening its grip ever since. And I know tons of liberals who are leaving the left. They can't take it. And they actually have shamefacedly admitted that they find more open-mindedness on the right. Who does not have a reputation for being open-minded? But when you get guys like, what's his name? Is it Brett Weinstein, the guy from Evergreen College who was run out on a rail for for questioning this racist policy that the that the college was engaging in he is he is a liberal guy he he you know he is a liberal in the in the common sense that we understand it i'm a liberal but i'm not a, i'm not a liberal in the common sense that we understand it today but he is he believes in a social welfare state and all that all that stuff and yet he was he was viciously attacked by people on the left to the point where he said, the only place I could go was to the right. And those people actually welcomed me and were interested in what I had to say. And, you know, when you get debate averse people who aren't, who have, who say reason is a, is a, an invention of uh, dominance, patriarchal dominance structures, you, you know, you, you can't discuss things with a person like that. I, I think that's fascinating because once again, from my understanding of the situations, it, it and it's probably because I do tend to hang around mostly well, almost entirely on the left individuals uh-huh. is the idea that I don't think people would view the right in that way from the left's perspective. And I think that's fascinating to hear a totally different perspective on the, the right wing. Right. I mean, I, well, look, I think everybody's caricaturing everybody else. And that's what I was so mad at on, on Facebook. I hated that the right was caricaturing the left and I hated the left was caricaturing the right. Nobody was talking to each other. They were talking to straw men versions of each other. And I was like, why don't you guys talk to each other? That person on the right isn't that. And that person on the left isn't what you're saying he is. So stop it. And, and I think that's, and I think that's something that's fantastic for all of us to hear. And I do like the idea that guardians project as well is going to be working towards the idea of a more harmonious social media, hopefully, which would hopefully make it reach the goal that I think the original intent of social media. I hope so too. We'll see. I'm going to do everything in my power to make that possibility an actuality. So your Kickstarter, how, how much time is left on it? Well, it's, I think by the end of the month. So I want to say probably 10, 10 days, somewhere in there. Very cool. And so for our listeners, we're looking for the Guardian Project, about two weeks left. How else can they help whatever the causes that you're supporting, including your American Capitalist Party and your other goals? Well, you know, you can go to my Twitter, Mark R. Pellegrino, and and follow me. And there's probably, I think there's a link on my Twitter to the American Capitalist Party. Read the platform. See what you think. If you like it, tell me. If you don't like it, tell me. Tell me what you think is wrong. Tell me what you think is wrong with it. We can have a talk about it. I'm always open to criticism because criticism doesn't make me weaker. It makes me stronger. It makes me more knowledgeable. I just don't understand why people are so afraid of it. 
And you can also uh, see the Kickstarter on my Twitter page. It's, it's pinned to my Twitter profile, so you can look at it, tap on it, read all about it, read what we're trying to do. And if you like it, put a buck in. <laughs> well, I, what I thought was very cool is that um, I think at the $30 level, you get an autograph f- picture from you. And especially considering having been to many conventions, that's a really, really good price. Usually they're in the $80, $90 range, I would imagine. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a fantastic offer. $30, $30 actually was a very good l- limit for that. Thank you. And, and also Zoom calls, if you have more, and uh, Zoom calls are always fun to do. And, and I, I never stop at the 10 minutes or whatever they say <laughs> you're supposed to do. <laughs> I, always, I, always like, I always like talking to the fans and getting their points of view on things. And that's always a thrill for me. So, Well, one, one last final question. I have not actually seen the, the last episode of Supernatural, so I don't know the answer. But does Lucifer show up at all in the last, these last two um, episodes? I'm not going to tell you. Oh no! <laughs> no, no, you gotta see it. <laughs> I, I, like I said, I'm a couple of days behind on Supernatural. I, I, my, I had to watch it. You know, share the TV with my wife, so I had to wait till it's a day where she's working. But I do. You know, I, I think it's fantastic how long Supernatural has lasted, and I think Lucifer was definitely one of those characters that I think elevated the show quite a bit. I think your your performance of Lucifer definitely in season five you gave you gave it the payoff that it deserved well thank you i enjoyed playing lucifer in all of its characterizations and i i enjoyed working with the boys and everybody in the cast and i just hope we all continue working and doing what we do what do you have uh, what do you have uh, next that, that, can you share whatever projects you have coming up uh, i'm supposed to do a, a project but i i'm not going to say what it is only because <laughs> I don't want the trolls to go over there. So uh, I'm going to keep it silent. It was something we were supposed to start right at the top of the pandemic. In fact, I flew out to Pennsylvania to to do a a reading and to start a fitting and we were just going to start working. And uh, the pandemic hit and I was there three days and had to fly back. And and so we're supposed to start up again in, in March 2021. From from my lips to dad's ears. Let's let's hope that's true. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mr. Pellegrino, for talking with me. You were a fantastic uh-huh. conversation. And I really am impressed with just how knowledgeable and philosophical and interesting you are to talk with. Well, thank you, man. I had a good time. I, I greatly appreciate it. If you don't mind, can you do a bumper for us? Yeah, sure. Now, you wanted me to just say who I am and stuff like that and then say, and you're listening to Spoiler Country? Yes. Okay, cool. Hey, this is Mark Pellegrino. You might know me as Lucifer from Supernatural or Jacob from Lost. And you are listening to Spoiler Country. Thank you so much, sir. And please come back anytime you want to um, promote anything. I'd love to have you back on. Thanks, man. Thanks for all your uh, good conversating. I appreciate that. Have a fantastic night. You too, please. What'd you think? I didn't even get to respond to the charmed comments. <laughs> Yawn. Sorry. But no, yeah, we're going to start getting, I'm going to start getting, trying to get Smallville and Charmed Actors. Come on. Yeah. Well, Smallville should be quite easy. <laughs> right. Well, I want to get, uh, we tried to get Mike Rosenbaum on and he said no. Aww. Well, no. He said he was too busy at the time. Hey, hey, 2020, everybody's got time. <laughs> Nothing but time right now. <laughs> but no, uh, Mark Pugino was awesome. Lucifer is awesome. He's got a Kickstarter going right now. 
And I'll have links in the show notes for that. Jeff and Mark talked about it a ton. But it's awesome. Go check it out. We'll be tweeting out of it too. You need to go look at that right now, right away. Because you know how much we love Kickstarters here. We do them all the time. Oh, we love Kickstarters. We know John loves Kickstarters as well as my bank account does. We know you like Jeeps as well as our bank account does. And nail polish (laughs) and leggings and water bottles. So shut your face. If I buy more than one of anything, all of a sudden now it's... $500 on nail polish in a month. It was like... And that's the only one I know about for that month. No... It's not that bad. I had to. I had no nail polish at the time. I'm like sliding on this bed trying to sit and talk to you. <laughs> Anyways, Mark, thanks for coming on so much. It was awesome. Uh, Jeff, you're awesome. awesome. The get. You're the get, no matter what Kelly says. And, uh, you know, if you like that, if you like that, what we do there, go to spoilers.com and check out all of our back issues. Check out all the back issues of all their other shows and check out our articles, reviews, and previews, all that fun stuff there. Go to store, go buy a t shirt, but fly as hell. Go to scpod.us slash Discord, join Discord server. And finally, it's the last thing you love to do. In Oceans of Podcasts, we are Cthulhu. That's Cthulhu. <laughs> uh, open the mind. <laughs> Read more. Open the mind. It's Monday. <laughs>